welcome to Celebrating Cinema, a podcast for the love of cinema by Lab 111. As you may notice, my voice is not the sultry British voice that you are used to. My name is Sophie, and for the coming months, while Elliot is traveling, I will be joining the team to navigate the depths of our love for cinema in his stead. Yay, Sophie. Love your voice. (laughs) We don't need Elliot back. This is a better voice. (laughs) This is way more sultry than the British stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Also newly joining us is Yvonne. Hi, everybody. You won't hear from me on the podcast, but I will be taking on Elliot's production duties. Hey. I love your voice, too. Shout out. Shout out. Unchanged are my co-hosts Tom, Hello. Hugo, hey, what's and Kiriko. Hi. Today we will reflect on the work of cult film director Alejandro Jodorowsky in celebration of the 50th anniversary re-release of his mystical magnum opus The Holy Mountain. But before we move on to the topic of today, I'd like to start by asking everyone what you've watched lately. Well, yesterday was Valentine's Day, which is a great moment to go back to some of your favorite films. And I organized a surprise date for my boyfriend, which was to watch the Titanic in 3D IMAX. Oh my God, how is that? And it was very special. My boyfriend had never watched it. I made BLT sandwiches, which I brought. And I was, I think... One of the best dates of my life. (laughs) I'm not sure if he feels the same way, but it was so fucking good. What an iconic statement of a movie. Box office gym never fails. What a picture. (laughs) What a picture. Box office gym never fails. (laughs) Was it in the high frame rate as well? Because he reconverted it to 48 FPS. No, he did? Yeah. Was it in 48 FPS? I guess. I need I to see know. it in the cinema. <laughs> I wanna, I'm dying to see it again. Do you see that difference in the cinema? Yeah, it's, it's so 3D is better when the frame rate is higher. Yeah. Uh, it was good 3D. It was okay. really good 3D. Then probably high frame. Yeah. But usually the high frame rate looks crap because the have you ever seen the, the Hobbit the movies? <laughs> no. So, the, so Peter Jackson did the same and it ended up just looking like soap <laughs> opera TV <Look> constantly. <laughs> like the motion smoothing on your parents' TV, but then in the cinema. <laughs> Yeah, that was nice. Well, in preparation of Knock at the Cabin, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm dying to see because I'm a huge M. Night Shyamalan. Ex- exactly. You need to explain you're an M. Night Shyamalan fan. Well, Old was the best film of the year that it got released. So now I'm watching old M. Night Shyamalan films. I showed my girlfriend who had never seen it, Signs and The Village and Massive Bangers. Ooh, Signs so is good. fantastic. Dude, Mel Gibson is so great in that film. I, You know, he's not really liked that much anymore but he's got movie star face you know you just look at his face and you go that's a movie star right there yeah. that conversation that he has with joaquin phoenix about the what kind of person are you yeah right? that's so fucking that's great writing and joaquin phoenix in both of these films also in the village tremendous yeah. stuff so great great times at the movies how about you tom um <laughs> i made the mistake of scouring through a streaming service which is not movie which is why I therefore will not name Watch everything on movie, not on the other streaming service. It was, uh, <laughs> I was watching Dr. Sleep. So, and every time what I- What is Dr. Sleep? The Shining sequel, right? So, yeah, so listen to this. So the, the <laughs> if you describe it, it already sounds like the stupidest thing it ever. It sounds like a fake movie. <laughs> it sounds like, yeah. And it looks, it, it feels like a fake movie. It's the sequel to The Shining. <laughs> but it's the sequel to The Shining as though- 
Stephen King said, okay, if you want to make a sequel to this, it has to be based on my stuff, not on the Kubrick stuff. But the studio probably said like, yeah, but nobody really liked your stuff. <laughs> Everybody liked The Shining. Also, he didn't like The Shining himself, He hated right? The yeah. Shining, really, yeah. So the entire first 45 minutes of the movie is fan service. Like, look, it's the carpet you remember <laughs> from The Shining. Look, it's that number on the door. We it's love the carpet. The room, we two, love three, the numbers. <laughs> it's an old woman in a bathtub. Remember that from The Shining? <laughs> which movie? And then, <laughs> you know, which movie? I think it's called The Shining. <laughs> but what does the sleeping doctor have anything to do with this? He's Dr. Sleep. He is Dr. Sleep. <laughs> the guy so, from The so Shining? So Danny? Okay, oh my God. It feels like I'm drunk and describing like an idea for a film that nobody wants to do. So... After 20 years or so, or so after The Shining, uh, Danny Torrance, like the little boy yes. back from, is yes, gr- all yes, grown yes. up and has turned into Ewan McGregor. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good for him, though. And is uh, <laughs> just a complete drunk taking money from a woman that he slept with the night before. And uh, it's, just, it's just terrible. And then the movie skips eight years and he has given up Shining... Uh, but there's a girl somewhere who is shining and there's this group of people who eat their, what they call steam, which is their soul going out of their body. And they eat that because they will become immortal and live forever. So they want to get that girl, but that girl cool. sort of cool s- gets in touch with <laughs> like, like, the it's Holy so Mountain. like, so s- <laughs> <laughs> when can I see the movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sophie? The last thing I watched was a, a National Geographic documentary. It's called Fire of Love. Oh, that's oh, a nice. good film. Yeah, it was great. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't choose it myself, but it was like watching a Wes Anderson documentary. Elliot interviewed the director for this podcast. Oh yeah. my God, really? Yeah. It's so a good Valentine's back. movie as well. Yeah, for sure. It is, yeah. I did actually, immediately after watching it, I went on to Letterboxd and read Elliot's review. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was it was a nice watch. Was this not the hot take review? Because this is a feature that we never had on the podcast, but we need to maybe in his absence start the Elliot Elliot hot, hot takes, takes reviews because Elliot has some spicy some, takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, sure. he, he like Escaping. brings the movies to the stakes. Anyway, talking anyway. about immortal souls and hot takes. Um, what are we going to talk about today? You want to know the secret. They speak of holy mountains. Nine immortal men live on top of the mountain. They hold the secret to the conquest of death. We are screening some films by Alejandro Jodorowsky at Lab 111. And... We're doing that because I also started a distribution company next to the cinema called Odyssey Classics, and I bought three Jodorowskis. Humble brag. Humble brag. Very much a humble brag, indeed. Yeah, so we're talking about his films. His bizarre, spiritual, out there, everywhere movies. I believe you have a cold open. I have a cold open, which is, as I said before we started recording, as incoherent as some of his cinema work. I hope it will make sense, and I hope it can be the starting point of a conversation about many things. It's a bit long, I think. Sorry about that. If you ever found yourself at an after party at my house during my 20s, chances are 
I made you watch a scene from an outrageous and grotesque film by Yugoslavian arthouse provocateur Dusan Makaveev, mm. movie called Sweet Movie. Banger. Usually the scene where a wealthy American man wearing a large cowboy hat, unsubtly symbolizing American capitalism, cleans his newly acquired Eastern European bride with some cotton wool and disinfectant before whipping out his gold-painted penis while she stares at him obliviously and lays on a fluffy heart-shaped bed underneath a large-scale replica of the Statue of Liberty. Meanwhile, his mother is standing outside spectating the whole thing next to a full-swing mariachi band. Oh yeah, got to a close-up of his gold penis peeing, fade to a waterfall. My friends used to hate it when a new person would join a party at my place because it meant that they have to endure the scene again. Oh boy, here comes Sweet Movie again. I saw a sweet movie in my early 20s when one of my best friends who now runs a cinema in Rotterdam organized underground movie nights at a place called the Rode Bioscope here in Amsterdam. And while I saw some far better films there like Elim Klimov's Comancy, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now or Andrei Tchaikovsky's Stalker, Makaveev's endlessly controversial film always stayed with me. It would function as a sort of gateway drug into a very particular envelope-pushing brand of 70s filmmaking. One that not only expressed the sexual, spiritual and political revolution of the times, but also showcased a madcap, drug-induced style of expressing grand and often outrageous ideas. Enter Alejandro Jodorowsky. In my younger years of being obsessed with lists, I bumped into the Holy Mountain many times. The website Taste of Cinema would feature it in selections like 20 Best Cult Movies, or 20 Most Visually Arresting Films, or 20 Films to Watch on Drugs. I may have made that last one up. And yet it was nearly impossible to see it in proper quality. A clearly bootleg DVD by an Italian company called Raro Video looked like somebody had poured paint thinner over the negative. Later I found out that the unavailability of the film was due to its producer Alan Klein, former manager of the Beatles, who tried to keep Jodorowsky's films out of circulation. According to Jodorowsky, Klein was waiting for him to die so he could earn more money with Jodorowsky dead. Newsflash, Klein is now dead, Jodorowsky has turned 94 last week. In my first year as a programmer of Lab 111, I booked his Acid Western El Topo and his masterpiece The Holy Mountain for a couple of sold-out screenings. This was the first time I was able to see both films and I was blown away. The scandal of the 1973 Cannes Film Festival, writer-slash-director Alejandro Jodorowsky's flood of sacrilegious imagery and existential symbolism is a surreal sojourn for enlightenment pitting illusion against truth. The alchemist, played by Jodorowsky himself, assembles together an elite group of thieves, industrialists and politicians, that represents the planets in the solar system. The master's adept intention is to put his recruits through strange mystical rites and divest them of their worldly baggage before embarking on a trip to Lotus Island. There they ascend the holy mountain to displace the immortal gods who secretly rule the universe. The Holy Mountain is a mythical, mystical masterpiece, a Hieronymus boss painting come to life, part spiritual quests, part science fiction, part social satire, and completely without comparison. Following his meteoric rise in the wake of El Topo, Alejandro Jodorowsky was given a budget of $1 million, equivalent to $4 million today, by his friends John Lennon and Yoko Ono, who had attended many screenings of El Topo as a midnight movie in the Elgin Theatre in New York, and total artistic freedom for his follow-up project. He wrote the screenplay, designed the sets and costumes, co-wrote the music, directed and acted in the film. Last year, I was able to acquire the rights for the Holy Mountain, as well as Jodorowsky's debut feature, Van der Elise, and his follow-up, El Topo. Starting February 23rd, 
These films will be released in brand new 4K restorations in the entire Benelux to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Holy Mountain. Rewatching these films now, especially the Holy Mountain, what strikes me is how times have changed. Jodorowsky's films are capsules of time where an entire generation felt that they had found their way to spiritual and social enlightenment. They were going to change the world, turn the table, like the alchemist does at the end of the film. But as we find ourselves in 2023 fighting for different, and sadly sometimes comparable freedoms, the question arises, how much have we gained? Ah, oh. fierce. Mm. Fierce. <laughs> <laughs> Good call open, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks. Thank you for the backstory. Well, I think, you know, it's a kind of like a leading question. So maybe to prolong your call <laughs> open a little bit, what do you think about, you raised it, so what do you yourself think about that? Because now you're screening the film again in the cinemas, three of his films. What do you think we gained? Because you seem a bit pessimistic or something. Not necessarily, but it's, yeah, watching it now again is that, okay, so first of all, we need to get a thing out of the way. There are like many things very controversial about like his films, the way he makes films and how like they're, they're pretty fucking out there. Mm -hmm. But I think that they feel a bit naive sometimes in a, in a very good way, but very much like a, how do you say, like, like I said in the cold open, like a capsule of their time. I honestly have the feeling that generation had the idea that they had changed the world for the better and that everything was equal and that we were all going to have sex with each other constantly and uh, it was all going to be fine and uh, we were going to topple capitalism. And uh, when I look at the world now, I sometimes have the feeling that we are even more divided than now than we were ever were. But it's funny that, you know, Yoko Ono and John Lennon were so involved with the career of Jodorowsky because I was recently watching the entire Beatles anthology documentary, which is 10 hours about the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like so proud of themselves when they made the song, All You Need Is Love, because they're like, that's really all you need, you know? So all you need is love, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, you know, love that can save everything, can solve everything. But like you say, that naivete... You see it in the Jodorowsky films as well. I'm not sure though. Like if you look at the Holy Mountain, it's the, I don't know. I see a lot of pain and horror mm -hmm. and horror that has, that humanity has created throughout history, but also the pain of capitalism at that moment, which was very much alive. And mm -hmm. also the movie doesn't really get to a point where you feel that there is a solution for that big of a power, the playfulness of, of how Jodorowsky makes his films and also how the Holy Mountain is a place of play without pain. But then I feel like that is not the real story. I think that is the, the attraction that pulls you in. Mm. But then all you see is soulless capitalism in the end, no? Yeah, I don't think in the end. I think that the message at the end of the film is that but maybe we're now we're really fast forwarding through this but i think that the message at the end of the film is where he breaks the fourth wall and, and almost says like yeah now you do it now you come to yeah to spiritual enlightenment you go out of this this stupid thing that i made called a film and go to reality and fix the problem i think there is an assumption maybe in that time but it's hard to make you know to really prove that case because we are not from that generation. But I think there was an assumption that arts uh, and just being transgressive enough in culture 
could maybe uh, transcend the actual material, you know, problems of the time, the political, mm-hmm. material, economic problems of the time. And it's true that his films are very much about pain and anguish as well. I think he's actually very good at depicting that in very evocative ways. But maybe they thought that through representing those feelings, that maybe could be a way forward. And I right. think the big question, or to answer your big question is, maybe we are at this point a little bit too cynical about film actually saving us or bringing us that much further. And maybe that's a loss. Because isn't it better to have somebody like Jodorowsky, who is so like out there with what he aspires to do with film, also get so much trust from friends around him to get that much money to actually be able to realize those things, right? I don't know. There's like at least, and I think that, you know, a sweet movie attests to that as well. Maybe it's kind of nice that people had the freedom to make all this crazy stuff because some of the images, you know, and things are unforgettable. And sweet movie, so the the scene that I describe is one of the funny ones and there's a lot of humor in that film as well. But there's also like this entire sort of documentary part of a commune where everybody treats each other as babies, Mm -hmm. which ends up with people eating their own shit. Uh, Fuck, stop with making people eat shit in (laughs) films. Like, I'm I'm done. Oh, you mean Pasolini? Yes, Pasolini, but the Holy Mountain has it as well. Oh no, does he eat the shit? No, but we see the shit, you know? Like... (laughs) It turns into gold, though. Yeah, yeah. but I'm yeah. done with seeing the shit, you, you know? Are well, can I ask an even more controversial question? Do you think the films are actually good? I love The Holy Mountain, but I don't like El Topo. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually also kind of like Fando Elise. Can you put to words what works in The Holy Mountain that doesn't work in El Topo? Or? So, what I said earlier about getting to the core of the horror of humanity, I find that the Holy Mountain does that very well. I have a similar experience with not having seen the film and always seeing it on these lists. And I saw the the stills like a bazillion times. So, you know, it looks fabulous. And I guess that idea of creating a candy shop and attracting people into these factories that he shows where these seven, well, I, w- I would call them gods, creates you know, all the horrors that we still live in, I guess, all the, all the biggest problems that we have. I find that mm. so powerful and it's symbolism that makes a lot of sense. Whereas in El Topo, I find that the symbolism or at least the language that Khodorovsky creates just does not get me to a place where I feel as if it's my world that he's talking about. En este desierto viven los cuatro maestros del revólver. Tú tienes que encontrarlos y matarlos. El desierto es circular. Para encontrar a los cuatro maestros tendremos que viajar en espiral. How would you guys describe El Topo? Because you did a perfect job of, you know summarizing the holy mountain and painting that picture but if somebody hasn't seen that film yet it's often labeled as the acid western you know but how would you Kiriko and the first real midnight movie together with a razor head yeah <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> sorry 
I don't know. It's just, yeah, colorful cowboys to me. It really doesn't spark. How about you, Sophie? It made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> and I didn't like that, though I did feel that that was maybe what he was trying to do. I don't know. I, I, I like the Holy Mountain more, but it also made me feel very uncomfortable. Um, and I don't know. I haven't really made up my mind yet. Because being uncomfortable is not necessarily, I feel, uh, a good way to judge a film. Mm. Mm. Especially with a filmmaker like him, where I feel like he does all these things on purpose. He wants you to feel heavy emotions because of all the pain and the anguish and all the things that you said already. All the whatnot. <laughs> all the whatnot. Especially... I mean, there's a lot of naked men in there as well, but especially as a woman, all the naked women and the mm -hmm. way they were treated, it made me very uncomfortable. Is Jodorowsky a feminist? Well, I like later we'll talk about Santa Sangre, which is not getting a re-release, but is I think his best movie. And that one is thorny, you know, it raises a lot of complex questions about whether he is or not. I was just reading up on him before we uh, started recording mm -hmm. and I saw that a um, exhibition about him was canceled a few years back because of a statement that he made while promoting uh, El Topo, I think, mm -hmm. where he said that he actually raped the actress that played the woman. I think her mm -hmm. name's Mara, which wasn't true. He said later, but it was a publicity stunt mm -hmm. that he said that he did it. He said, I think the statement was like, I actually raped her. I actually did it. And she actually screamed. Which he did to shock people into watching the film, which yeah. is From what I've horrible. understood, he, so he later got back to that comment saying that it wasn't true. And the reason why he said it in the first place was because he believed that as a South American director, no one would, would listen to him in the States so that he had to make these big... Um, shocking statements for American attention. So maybe that's what's so interesting then about him, but also can be very off-putting is that his films are so thorny and that his life and his films address so many things at the same time. So it kind of models the mixture a little bit because The Holy Mountain is about a zillion things and finds often the right imagery to convey all of those things. Mm -hmm. But maybe they're also in some sense, you know, overreaching or a bit too ham-fisted. And maybe that's where a part of the datedness also comes from. You know, like you said, they are time capsules in the sense that they try to capture every aspect of those times. And maybe that's a bit, a lot of a responsibility for a film and an artist. Especially in relationship to what you just said, Sophie, about the, because of course I've, I read about this uh, exhibition as well about the cancellation and also the response that his wife wrote about uh, about how um, about how he's a kind man. Uh, <laughs> not all men. It was not a really all strange men. statement. Uh, <laughs> not all men. Yeah. There is of course in that, by the way, a huge problem that the actress who actually plays her is completely intraceable. Nobody knows where she is. Fuck. So this statement is still up in the air of him, uh, him saying that and him reminding me, and then I'll come back to what you said in a sense, 
that statement, if it is true, actually, that he said it to sort of shock, it reminds me a lot of the I uh, sympathize with Hitler statement by Lars von Trier. Mm. Oh, I thought you were going to say Kanye, Kanye West. West. Which would have well, been the most interesting connection. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to yeah. that. We'll get to that. Also a filmmaker, uh, Lars von Trier, not Kanye West. Kanye West is also oh, yeah, he's yeah, definitely yeah. a filmmaker. He dabbles of, of throwing paint against a wall and not everything sticks, right? Yeah. That's nice. That's a nice way of saying that. Yeah. Thank you. You know, there is a moment maybe in film history, and it's very clearly this moment, where people finally, I think, found an outlet for total transgression, and it was film. You know, this awful film Babylon tries to convey some of that as well, right? How behind the scenes it was always crazy, but then often it was not represented as such in front of the camera. And then suddenly in the post-60s landscape, you find directors everywhere that find an outlet of all of these things that are in the air and putting them on screen. And that is wildly exciting, um, but in a sense can then also generate that naivete and then immediately raises zillions of issues about the representation that is in it, right? About the way that they depict you know, human bodies and the way that they interact and the sexual politics of all of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, animals. Animals <laughs> yes, as well, you sure. know. This year there will be a big thing in the film museum in the Netherlands about Werner Herzog. And Herzog is, can be very much slotted in that same category for a little while as Jodorowsky, where a lot of things were able to be done in the expense of How many other... frogs do you need? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> To make a movie, you know, as if that's the most holy thing. Um, Maybe that's what we gained then and that's also what we lost. Maybe the awareness that maybe sometimes it's only just a movie, you know. I'm now uh, suddenly reminded of uh, that cinema that I mentioned in the cold open in Rotterdam also recently screened Cannibal Holocaust, Mm -hmm. which is, of Mm -hmm. course, one of the films that has the worst animal cruelty you've ever seen in a film. At the same time, it's also... I think sort of narratively one of the most influential films ever or made in the past, what is it, 30, 40 years? Yeah. No Blair Witch Project, no found footage movies, no paranormal activity without yeah. uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Does that mean that it was okay that like a, a turtle was cut up in the beginning of the film? No, but... Yeah, well, you know, the, you have to... Now we're digressing wildly, but one of my favorite John Ford movies is Stagecoach, which mm. has... It's a 1934, I want to say, Western about people in the, riding in a stagecoach and they're being attacked by, you know, Native Americans. And uh, what they did back in the days to make those action scenes uh, convincing is they would uh, spring up an uh, invisible tripwire and then make the horses, like, full speed galloping over them so that mm. they fall and then, you know, mimic the gunshots so that they would just crash. They killed like two, like they shoot horses, don't they? It's like they killed like hundreds of horses on that set. That's actually when they started doing the animal cruelty thing on film sets. Mm. Anyway, all of this goes to say, what what is a movie worth? And then the, it's all of the things that you kind of see in the film are maybe this big weird sacrifice to art. And then luckily the Holy Mountain is like, it is a magnum opus. It still holds up, I would say. But it's interesting, Tom, that you also have his debut feature, which is often, again now as well, not really talked about and kind of overlooked. Había una vez una ciudad maravillosa llamada Tar, 
Cuando sucedió la gran catástrofe, desaparecieron todas las ciudades, menos Dar. Si sabes buscarla, la encontrarás. Cuando llegues a Dar, conocerás la eternidad. He was born in Chile and then he moved to Paris and mm -hmm. he studied with Marcel Marceau, like the great uh, famous mime player. Uh, he made a short film there called La Cravate, which is, I think, was deemed destroyed for years. And then in 2003, a print was rediscovered. Really small uh, film, almost on one set, him as a mime. Some of the shots are the same that he would later employ, like these sort of stationary mm -hmm weird weird angle things and then he moves back to chile and he directs i think almost like over a thousand plays for mm. a i think a, a theater group called the panic movement <laughs> such uh, a good name such a good name yeah which almost describes what it was it was like super avant-garde chaotic theater that was hypersexual and all over the place and fondo release his debut movie is a Adaptation of a play written by his friend Fernando Arabal, which is from that same period and that same theater group. And is about sort of codependent relationship between two lovers. But you said you like this more than El Topo, right? So I'm going to hand this over to you to yeah, describe yeah, yeah. this. Yeah, so Fando Elise, I think um, Khodorovsky for all three films that you are uh, showing here, They, they have sort of like a magical formula of characters going to a place looking for some form of enlightenment, whether it mm. be freedom from capitalism or, you know, what, it, what would it be in El Topo? Because I'm, I'm not sure why. He, I think he just wants the woman, no? And he needs to kill, kill for You him. just need to bury the picture of your mother in your first toy. That's, yeah, that's it. Women. So the search <laughs> of women on mountain. And then for Fando Elise... I think it's uh, they're going on a mountain or they're going to a place to free themselves from their trauma. Yeah, mm. The mystical city of Tar. Which I think is done in such a charming, sweet mm. way where it's two people and they're in a relationship and things go well, but they also really hurt each other because of their traumas. And their traumas are, are symbolized in such a beautiful way where, you know, their father and their mother's need to come back, they need to bury them mm. in order to move along, they need to carry each other, whether they are dead or alive. I don't know, I find it it's such a clear, sweet way of, of showing how, how you need to, you know, move over. I think this is also very affecting, yeah. Yeah. Because I have the feeling that we're sort of bouncing back between what is what worked then maybe, or how people respond then and how we respond to these films now because there are controversial or provocative things happening in them. So this movie was banned in Mexico yeah. for, a long, for the longest time when it premiered at the Acapulco Film Festival, which sounds like the best film festival ever. Uh, when it screened the first time, the crowd tried to kill him, tried to kill Jodorowsky because they were so incredibly angry about what they saw on screen that they, they chased him out of the theater and he had to sort of secretly leave with a, with a car because otherwise they, according to his words, he, they would have lynched him. Mm -hmm. I mean, never trust the man because he says a lot of things uh, hey, to yes, create. 
and also good for the audience to have an evocative reaction you know yeah. that's like a great historical audience we I love mean, to hear <laughs> that's what they do at the Acapulco film yeah. festival you know yeah Kiriko you should submit your films there yes <laughs> we'll do <laughs> well why was it banned though because they thought it was I think especially sexually way too transgressive mm. but when was the film released what year uh, 68 I mean that's not that I mean, maybe, I don't know what the Mexico film climate was at the time, but it wasn't, it's not that explicit. No, but this is the interesting yeah, thing. But you have to imagine that this is like really just this cutting off moment where it's a turning point, literally almost globally in what people were trying to kind of like show in arts. And, you know, so many things have passed through so many censors when it was like pictorial arts or anything other. But with film, I think people were just so much more cautious because it comes so much closer to actually resembling a reality and then mm-hmm. capturing the things as such was maybe too controversial right i don't know you know it's so interesting what you said which is i think ultimately the thing that i love the most about most jodorowsky films if not all is those themes that he constantly returns to which is to overcome the burdens of your predecessors to actually transcend the conditions that have shaped you to become a better person and the difficulties, the trials and tribulations in doing so. If you look at his late films, uh, The Dance of Reality Mm -hmm. and then Endless Poetry, which are the most autobiographical films, they were meant to be part of like a five-parter saga that was about his entire life. They have all those themes as well and he puts himself back into the movie as well in such beautiful, reflective ways. And he mellowed out a lot in those movies. And I think the mellowing out was actually good for him because maybe back in those days, there is a lot of temptation to go overboard with it sometimes. Mm. And then... But that's also, I mean... That that was what made him yeah, cool. Yeah, that's what made him it cool. Made him it's also a freedom that you yeah. don't really feel in film yeah. these days, which is, I don't know, like... I think Endless Poetry is also a, a, a nice film, but it's very watchable, I would say. It's <laughs> it's, Endless Poetry might be my favorite of his. That really? film made me like cry a, mil- like a zillion times. It's the first film that I saw. Oh, yeah. And it was my boyfriend at the time was like, oh yeah, I, I watched this crazy film with my friend the other day and I think you'd love it because you like films and you know <laughs> and I think it's it's so weird and and artsy and you should watch it and then we watch it and I was like this is not weird this is boring but imagine seeing <laughs> you know seeing his debut film and then revisiting uh Endless Poetry which has yes, all of the same that would have made sense yes. I guess and then seeing how he kind of it's not only the mellowing but just the control that he wants to have over that story yeah then suddenly it becomes very interesting yeah no okay so i'm a bit on your side kiriko well i'm like split down the middle i really like pure poesia sin fin or endless mm-hmm. poetry but it does feel a bit like pedro almodovar just took <laughs> half the pill and not the entire <laughs> one and well, it's jodorowsky without any pills i'm gonna say know? something controversial but it's Please don't say Pedro, Pedro Almodovar, Almodovar is a great filmmaker. Did, did he ever make a good film? Oh, though? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> he wished that he could make one film as good as Endless Poetry. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, I don't agree, man. Anyway, 
I remember that you once said that you watched the Holy Mountain on some form of. Drugs. I think I've said it on the podcast. Yes, I can do it really briefly, but just because it's funny and it's one of the worst screenings I ever had. You joked about it being on the list of you know twenty films that you can see with drugs. Actually, the Holy Mountain is kind of a film that maybe sucks on drugs in general because there's already too much in it. <laughs> you know what's good films to watch on drugs are like James Bannon movies where there's only skies or just trains passing like and that's the whole movie cinema. yeah landscape cinema just like almost watching paint right that's actually nice but there's too much <laughs> happening maybe in the holy mountain for like psychedelic drugs anyway some people in amsterdam came up with the great idea to do a double projection screening of holy oh mountain with two screens side by side that quote unquote simultaneously played the movie but it was off in a couple, like a second. So it was in tandem in a very annoying arrhythmic way. It didn't even, you know, add anything. It was awfully distracting. And then they gave everybody magic chocolates. And uh, we were in this venue, but there was a piano there as well. And it, one guy is just really, really high. And he's just banning the piano keys all the time. But I'm too high to realize that the dissonant awful piano chords are not in the movie but actually are generated in the room so i'm like this is such a dissonant awful experience and i'm like why is that and then at the end of the movie i see this guy hammering the keys and I'm like, oh fuck it was so really annoying. bad and then the film was over and they were like okay well now have a nice evening and then we were at the ndsm in amsterdam waiting for the ferry and it was like oh no God. aftercare no talk or anything Shit. it kind of goes to show you that the whole hippie enlightenment thing can also be very isolating because if you don't actually <laughs> talk with each other and give each other aftercare but after those experiences what is it actually for you know yeah good one so don't watch it high don't do drugs <laughs> I'm wondering a bit about what you said about him uh, mellowing out later, because mm -hmm. I haven't seen the endless poetry. poetry and yeah, dance of reality before. You're talking about his absurdism, mm -hmm. because for me, throughout what I've seen, I haven't seen all of his films and not in their entirety. It felt like he's a man with an extremely big ego. Oh, totally. And making a five part autobiographical film about yourself doesn't sound like mellowing out. <laughs> You know, I'd rather have directors with some form of big ego because that maybe propels them to make stuff and I'd like to watch things from people. So maybe that's like a plus. However, the thing that he kind of grapples with in those movies is not only his own upbringing and him. Basically, it's always very biblical stuff, you know, overcoming your parents and your, especially also your father and... But then he himself is also a father and a grandfather and his sons play himself in his movies and he comes into his movies playing his father, talking with his sons. It like breaks the timelines as well and he generates these spaces in his films where basically he can do a kind of weird intergenerational uh, therapy almost where he's playing his father and but he's the grandfather of the protagonist who is playing him when he was young. So he's kind of like uh, mapping out his entire family tree in those movies in a very unique way. And those scenes really got to me because where, like what other family is doing that thing that comes to mind closest maybe is Sofia Coppola with that movie that she made with the recent movie with Bill Murray, the film on Apple TV+. Plus. 
The On The Rocks one? Yeah, On The Rocks, yeah. yes. Nice. <laughs> Which also kind of plays with that, but, you know, here it's even more explicit. I remember one thing that's just just beautiful snippet, I guess, where he gets a necklace from this guy, right? Who This mystical guy who has taken all the symbols from the major religions as like jewelry and melted them into one as to say it doesn't really matter which religion or philosophy you believe in. All of them are connected to a similar spiritual thing. And Jodorowsky is a very spiritual person, you know, does a lot of tarot cards and stuff. Actually, he's on Twitter and he posts like tarot cards and these kind of like animated sparkling gifs that you're like aunt or something would so post on Facebook. Sweet. He's basically like a boomer woman on on Twitter. It's very cute. But he is like very spiritual and it's fairies and stuff. But anyway, so as a young boy, he gets that necklace and then he brings it home and he's very happy. And then his parents find out about it and they're like, oh, no, no, you, you need to be a capitalist. Spiritual. And they flush it down the toilet. Again, the toilet humor, I guess. But just that scene is just somebody gives him like an insight into life maybe kind of like a key to unlocking yourself in a spiritual way and it gets flushed down the toilet those kind of images i've thought were like actually good right also again as symbolizing some trauma like your parents try to erase the experiences that you've made yourself that can make you a good person or something yeah yeah i guess that's i mean what you just said about him actually including his family in showing the narrative of his family trauma. I didn't know that. It sounds typical and almost like a thing that he does for all of his films to actually include documentary parts in his fiction, which is beautiful, but also, I mean, we're in a lucky position where we are allowed to judge like the Herzog and the Jodorowsky for all the horrible things that they did, but then... We're still out here watching other films and enjoying them. Yeah, they're still it's, out we're there. We're very yeah. lucky in that way. <laughs> I guess one of the best ways to understand human horror that men can make, men that we love and, you know, men that we still respect to, to some extent also. So profound. There's this beautiful essay by... Uh, Claire Dederay, who's also making a book about this, The Art of Monsters Men, about her obsession with Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. Mm. And she can't stop watching the movies, even though she knows that they're bad people, right? But it's interesting because she's a writer and she's also an artist. And then she kind of tries to... And that's, I think, the only damning thing really about it is that she tries to capture that for her, it's way less allowed to be that monster as well. Because people will take it against her as a woman, as a mother, as a wife or whatnot. You know, so many Mm -hmm. roles that one has to have in society. And then because some of these monsters made iconic movies, they have gotten away with it. And then try to maybe later in their late films interrogate that. And that results in very fascinating films as well. But they did manage to get away with it. I don't know. Yeah, he was lucky as well in that sense. (laughs) Yeah, and we are... Yeah, I guess... It's a comfortable place for as a viewer. Yeah. So let's now play a clip of that time that Jodorowsky described when he met that other terrible person, Kanye West. (laughs) That's actually a pretty good idea. So what's funny is that Jodorowsky just lives in Paris in the apartment building and people are still obsessed with him, but he's like totally... Yeah, what I said. He's just a boomer guy basically on Twitter (laughs) from time to time. So he's not really with it 
in that sense. Um, and there's this very like, well, the clip is probably playing now. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the clip is now playing over you. Yeah, <laughs> me co- giving a commentary. We're gonna do the Holy Mountain thing where it's just too much at the same time. It's gonna be you and the music of the Holy Mountain, and then that clip of him discussing it, and Jesus walks by Kanye West playing at the same Sounds time. Sounds perfect. You recently met with Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> What was uh, your impression? Was very surrealistic. <laughs> I didn't know nothing about Kanye West. <laughs> but really, I don't know who he is. Nah. The only thing they say, a rapper, a person who sings rap, they say me, speak you are a genius, and he inspires you, him to make a show with Isabel Jesus, and he's inspired by the Holy Mountain. He declared him. I said, ah, yes, fantastic. Well, but it's funny that other people aspire to transgression have to turn towards Jodorowsky at some point because he did it maybe at this critical time and found the right imagery. Well, it's funny that like he's a major influence for a lot of artists and filmmakers as well. I mean, like the one filmmaker who cannot stop referencing him is Nicholas Weining Refn. Yeah. Like the guy who made Drive and uh, Only God Forgives and um, all those. Uh, what, what's the other one? The Neon Demon, for instance. And also went on a pilgrimage to see Jodorowsky and actually have mentor guidance from him. Oh, cute. Yeah. Do you guys have a favorite Jodorowsky-inspired film? That's a good question. Wow. This is a question for everyone. That's a deep cut. How do we know? If you feel it. If you feel it. Yeah. What evokes that quality... I think one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years is is maybe influenced in some way by Jodorowsky, Midsommar. Mm. Trauma. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, trauma wow, and drugs. yeah, super, super trauma. Best breakup movie ever made, as I said many times on this podcast. Maybe Ari Aster watched some Jodorowsky there? Yeah, I think so. So this strange sort of let's put all folklore in one basket and then swing it around. I don't know, maybe... Our friend of the show, Gaspar Noé, you know, is mm. also very much, his films aspire to some of that as well. And actually, he's cliche, but I do love Gaspar Noé films a lot. Mm-hmm. I wonder what, what your answer would be. I have an observation about it. Mm, I guess it's not my one of my favorite films now, but as a teenager, I watched... The Fall by Tarsem Singh, oh, like yeah. over and over and over again, which I would say is kind of like a teenage Disney version of at least the aesthetics of and of very the much Parajano. Tarsem yeah. Singh is very much Sergei Parajano yeah, inspired, sure. but yeah. you can definitely see the overlapping interest between Jodorowsky and Parajano as well. Yeah, I like the idea of creating like playful gods in a world that we live in. And I, I, that film I loved as a teenager. But The Fall is really like, the, it has the sweetness turned up to 11. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. in a bad way, but I mean, it is, it's almost like a kid's movie. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, yeah. because it's told by a kid. Yeah. But I think we're now at a point where you see also... I'm also too much on Twitter, but there's now this whole discourse on Twitter. <laughs> if you're a minute on Twitter, you're already too long on Twitter. No, that's not true. Oh, come but on. there's a discourse on Twitter right now, or there's like a vocal group of people, let's put it like that, who are like very much kind of like railing against 
sex scenes in films and like depictions of nudity and these kind of like moments of Im- intimacy. And if you look at mainstream film at this point, it's kind of like totally scrubbed of things that are messy about human relationships and desire and like Marvel movies, for instance, have like a negative zero form of sexual attraction in them. You know, people look beautiful, but they don't actually desire each other or have serious relationships. And there's something to be said that we're maybe reverting or regressing in a kind of more puritanical form of mainstream film production that in some sense it would be good if there would be people like Jodorowsky now, maybe with a little bit of the, you know, awareness of how we should treat others, <laughs> oh, other beings, <laughs> maybe a little bit, maybe just to go a little bit against that kind of pathological state where we're in, where everything that has to do with the erotic and with desire and with the sexual is kind of like eradicated from our movie culture or something. But there's nothing sexual about Jodorowsky, the way he no, portrays sex. No, it's true. Well, actually, you know, there's one film, and that's maybe a good bridge, but there's one film that is very, very sexually charged, and that's Santa Sangre. Talk uh, Santa Sangre with us. Okay, well, so this is probably, I would say, arguably the best, conventionally speaking, the best Jodorowsky. Um, so it's a film from 1993, I think. 1989. Okay, yeah. cool. Sorry. Almost... Almost right. <laughs> <laughs> Only four years. You know, what's, what's, what's four years on 125 years of film history? Uh, you know? <laughs> anyway, it takes place in Mexico, I think. And um, it's a young boy. His father is kind of like this famous like knife-throwing guy who's dressed up as this kind of um, all-American dude. And his mom has like... a. Uh, her own church dedicated to a, a saint, but it's all like a church of like Jesus and blood. It's very blood focused and all of these traumas stack up. His father cheats, his mom dies. Um, he's kind of like in this weird state and in a, in, a, in a, like, I don't know, he's like a totally tormented boy who, well, actually his mom maybe doesn't die, but he reconnects with his mom who doesn't, like have arms anymore and he needs to become her piano player and be her arms in like the theater and it becomes this insane Freudian thing where he's kind of in a very toxic relationship with his mom but he also like desires other girls but every time he wants to fuck another girl the ghost maybe of his mom forces him to kill those girls so suddenly he has a house and there's like the dead bodies of girls buried in the house everywhere. Like <laughs> there's like zillions of girls that he had to kill. And then it becomes like a horror movie. And then it becomes a police like thriller movie. And it just, it goes all places. But the thing that holds it together is those like strong depictions of those traumas. Those really intense, like repressed sexual urges of the protagonist that are not allowed to, you know, come to fruition and just the most breathtakingly beautiful shots. It's such a beautiful movie. At the beginning, immediately, you know, the camera pans and you have this kind of like traveling circus and all the things on the... What you have in uh, The Holy Mountain as well, but with less symmetry. So things just happen on the screen and it's chaotic and things happen in the foreground and the background. It's a beautiful film. I saw it in the cinemas recently and it was a lot of fun. But that film is very much about sexuality, I guess. 
Maybe more so than the others. It's very late stage Fellini vibes. Yeah. It's like evil Fellini. <laughs> evil, evil Fellini? Yeah. Evil Fellini. Yeah, I kind of, yeah. But then it's funny that it's in a sense his most sort of, uh, it has the most focused of, of focus of all his films, I guess. Even though it's like five genres wrapped yeah. in one. Yeah. <laughs> and still all over the place, but focused. Talking about that transgression, is that not the thing that we should, you know, that we can take away from his films that a little bit more of that might actually be good? Because, you know, Midsummer for all of its things that it does good, it's also a little bit of a safe film, I would say. Mm -hmm. I wish it would color a little bit more outside of the lines that he set up for himself. Exactly that. What you just said is what what I find interesting about these films is that, yeah, it's good that there's... There needs to be some splattering of paint outside of those lines to bring the paint back into yeah. the uh, fucking metaphor. But that's what is interesting to see, even if there are parts of these films that you might not agree with or that shock you still or or that might bring you into touch with how some morals have changed through the years. That's what I was trying to hint at in my cold open as well. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily that... Oh, and we are not doing better, right? I mean, it's like... We are still not doing better, but there it's, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to describe. I, uh, I agree with you that some transgression is sometimes missed. And I'm, of course, not saying transgression for the sake of transgression or to hurt people or to, or to uh, once again cut up turtles at the beginning of Cannibal Holocaust. I don't think that that's what we're looking for. But I do think that... What you're almost trying to say about the Marvel movies, I think that's going for a safety that doesn't even really represent society at all. No, because, uh, you know, James Cameron with Avatar and th- those are also very friendly. Oh my God. How did you go there so quickly? Fox, Fox oh my shin, God. Baby. No, but he's like, he's fr- like, and his... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, okay. Oh my God. The way of water has no beginning and no end. You That's are that <laughs> one episode by South, the South Park episode about James Cameron raising the bar. And it's like you constantly raising James Cameron's bar. <laughs> well, but he's like, it's a family friendly movie as well, but it, at least it really understands family as a structure and a concept. Family. But there's, you know, and he said in the interview as well that the way that people interact in contemporary films right now is just insane for him just this kind of like uh infantile uh irony laced non-banter you know that doesn't represent human relations at all and Mm -hmm. isn't that ultimately still a kind of thing to aspire to in film somewhat to have some of that in there i'd say so yeah i think we as a society are just at a point where I really don't want to call it puritanical because I think that's that's then you take away from from good battles being fought. It, there's puritanical tendencies. There are well, if you shy away from any problem in art completely, you're not helping w- with any issue. Yeah, but right? there are such few examples of portrayal of pain in arts which has been done without the creation of pain mm. to people who are always the victims of pain. 
This is ultimately why film is just a very fucked up medium because if you want to show something, you <laughs> actually have to Celebrating show it. Celebrating cinema <laughs> yeah. with Hugo Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> This is like, <laughs> this is why cinema is a fucked up medium. It is. And, and people can't see you on the podcast. You're like fucking, you're like head, head in hand going like, oh my God, cinema. Cinema is, God is dead. Cinema is dead. Uh, where are we going? James Cameron is the only man who can any do anything. There must be ways to do it right though, right? Or maybe right is not the right word, but this really makes me think of the series Normal People, because mm. I feel like they try. Oh, is to that the one with Paul Mescal? And yeah, the, yes. I, sh- I really want to watch Paul that. Mescal, yes. No, now because I'm in love with it's, Paul Mescal. I I loved it so much. I thought it was a great series, and I feel like that one tried to veer in a kind of a different direction because they really try to show the relationship between the two main characters in a very very messy way. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's so much nudity and sex in the series. Like I remember reading reviews that were like, you might not believe this, but there's more sex than in Game of Thrones, um, which is <laughs> insane. <laughs> what it's a like, strange comparison. They're constantly naked, but in a very messy way. And I've just, I've been reading so much about it when I watched it because I thought it was so good. And the actors were talking about how they constantly had to be naked around each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is talking about what you're saying, that if you want to show it on the screen, you have to actually, actually do it. it. Yeah. Um, and like they were talking constantly about how the guidance that they got throughout the series was so good and that it was really what made them be able to portray it in such a real and raw way because they had to do it in such a real and raw way. So you want to be able to feel comfortable doing that. and. Um, yeah, they had like expert guidance on uh, how to be naked with each other. Like, you know, all of these things, I agree. And it's a great example. I haven't seen it, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. But it can totally be done, you know, and that's not necessarily the issue. But then also to put it in this film screen, because again, you know, maybe those things are now more easy to do on TV because it's supposed that you, you know, watch it from the comfort of your own home and you have a bit more anonymity and privacy. Um, and it's not even about the portrayal of nudity per se. And maybe it's just about the embracing of messiness or something. But what what I kind of wanted to say is that, you know, I do feel that we are at a point where mainstream film is very stagnant in two directions. One of them is the mainstream form and the other is kind of like an art house form where well, I've talked about this before, where you represent a single problem, maybe, and then that should cover it or something, right? I do kind of desire that there would be a Jodorowsky-type person or multiple people that at least break maybe with some of the narrative conventions that yeah, are around sure. that as well, mm. because maybe that's also... the yeah. Either it needs to be now this totally up its own as kind of like inverted metaverse IP fuckathon, or... <laughs> It needs to be this like hyper-realist thing and there's so little in between. There's, like just yeah. the imagination yeah. of the canvas of cinema. Where yeah, is yeah, that yeah. or something? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah and this I, I fully agree with. But yeah. I think it's a different different. Yeah, yeah but they've ha- they are for me somehow deeply interlinked. I'm not sure why, but, but thinking about Jodorowsky raised those questions for me, I guess. That's the thing that when I first saw The Holy Mountain here, like when I started out here, it was what I fa- thought was so liberating about about it i'm just gonna do this like i'm just gonna put all these things together 
And that's... <laughs> yeah, and even if it makes no fucking sense. Yeah. Because there's a lot that makes no fucking sense. But, um, yeah, I don't know where I want to go with this sentence. But uh, Make it, movies make less sense. Make less sense. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or, like... Yeah, we I need more millionaires just throwing four million. Definitely. At a, at 100%. A, yeah. With yeah. full creative... That's what's needed for this. <laughs> That's a weird way to end the podcast. No, it's a great way to end the podcast. Until that happens, you can watch uh, Alejandro <laughs> Jodorowsky's films here right. in Love 11. Ooh, if everybody comes see those films, maybe it can make Tom a millionaire. Yeah. And he can start supporting <laughs> filmmakers oh, to make happen. crazy movies. <laughs> I have one final question to, to end. So we've heard now in this episode that his films are a lot. They're very absurd. They're unpleasant, but also pleasant. You can watch it in different ways. For people that are uh, going to come here to watch the films for the first time, what do you think is a, is a good way to see his films, like to experience them, a way to go into the film? I, I know. Just go like during the weekdays or something. Just take a sick day from your job, go to like the morning Thursday, Thursday morning screening of the movie, take a cup of coffee and some sparkling water and watch the movie. That will be the best way. Skip work, watch a good film. Well, I'm not going to disagree with that at all. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I wouldn't recommend doing drugs and watching this film. No, <laughs> no, 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 definitely. No, no. I would, the mood that you need to be in is like, you know, the fuck it's Monday morning mood. That's the mood. <laughs> All right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Anti-capitalist mood. And I would <laughs> say, and I would say, uh, so now I forgot to, to reference that anecdote that my mother, of my mother calling me up like a while, a while back when the abortion rights in the, in the States had changed. And when she was young, she had always protested for, for that and she called me up crying and she felt so sad about the fact that she had the feeling that all the things that she had done in the 70s had not made any difference. I don't know how this relates to what I'm going to say, but it just, I always have to think about that bridge in time between this movie and where we, where we are now. And how it, if you watch these films, go see them with an open mind and there might be things that you don't agree with or that might shock you or that might be pro- too provocative for you or anything but they do show you a time where we thought differently about some things and uh how how can we learn from that and go forwards i think that that's that that's what i would give viewers if this episode has made you interested in jodorowsky's oeuvre you will be able to watch his works in lab 111's program the alchemy of alejandro jodorowsky you can find links to tickets in our show notes. So looking forward, after the success of our first ever Celebrating Cinema live event in January, a screening of the all-time classic Twilight, we will be back next month with a new event. Uh, The date is to be announced still, but you are welcome to join us at LUP 111 for the launch of our new series, Future Frames. This is a series where we celebrate emerging Dutch filmmakers whose frames we are excited to see more of and to claim the screen. This will be a series of one-on-one conversations with our future frame makers. Accompanying the event, we will drop the first interview of the series and afterwards you can listen to a new in-depth interview every week for five weeks straight. If you haven't listened to our interview with Twilight director Catherine Hardwick 
for our episode featuring the live Q&A accompanying last month's Twilight screening. Make sure to check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on and share so more people can find us. Make sure to subscribe and stay up to date with all new releases. If you want to join the conversation, feel free to send any questions at celebratingcinema at lop111.nl and follow us at lop111 on Instagram. As always, we provide show notes, including all films mentioned at celebratingcinema.com. This was a Lab 111 production, edited and produced by Yvonne GC, with music from Hugo Emmerzaal and artwork by Studio FFF. <laughs>